Well, hello, Hills Church family, live at all of our campuses. Welcome to everybody at Keller and at West Fort Worth, at NRH, and those joining us online or later on podcast. My name's Taylor. I, for the last nine years, have had the joy of serving as teaching minister here at the Hills. And today is my last message uh, as a member of our staff because I am uh, helping to plant a brand new church uh, in Malibu, California, on Pepperdine University's campus called Waves Church. And, uh, and the thing that I would ask you to do live at our campuses is, even though I'm teaching as a teaching minister for the last time, will you listen like I'm one of our church planters? Because you guys, like, I feel like the Hills, we always listen a little bit better with our church planters. We always a little more vocal back with our church planters. So, uh, so help me finish strong with this message. And if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, while you turn there, man, I, uh, I just have such joy in opening the word with you and getting to preach. I feel that today the same way I felt it nine years ago when I stood on stage with our senior teaching minister, Rick Atchley, and he announced on this stage that I was going to be joining the teaching team and coming to the hills. So I owe so much to Rick, and he's He's not here um, this week. In fact, I knew that, um, that he was going to be with one of our church plants in Colorado, Trace Church. He and Jamie are there, uh, and I know he's, he's blessing them, uh, not only by his presence, but through his words. And, uh, and last week, we got to have a meal together and just celebrate so much of what God's been up to. And so one more time, Rick, uh, I know you're watching back later, and uh, I have the microphone. You can't stop me. And I just want you to know, I love you so much. And I have been impacted over the last nine years. I am a better man and a better preacher and closer to Jesus because of the years I have spent in brotherhood and ministry with you and Jamie. This church family is so blessed to have a couple like you who not only serve faithfully, not only serve out of the gifting and anointing God has given you, but that you have served for decades in the marathon of ministry at this church. It is an incredible blessing. So Hills family, can we show some love to Rick and Jamie? Yeah. Love you guys. And Rick's watching going, Taylor, stop talking about me. Move on. So um, I, uh, I am excited to, to get to open, open the word with you and, and want to give you one last update. And it is an update from the West Coast. Um, so Waves Church is being planted on Pepperdine's campus, and we're kind of starting a little bit of what we think of as year zero uh, right there on campus. And as the semester has begun, we, we did our first ever public gathering. So I flew out to the West Coast for, uh, for our, Sunday, August 20th was our first ever gathering. And if you know Southern California, you know it's known for its incredible weather. And, you know, we've supported church plants in Southern California that during, during the pandemic, when they couldn't meet indoors, met outside on Sundays uninterrupted for months and months on end because they had such good weather. So as a frame of reference, this was the kind of weather I was imagining for August 20th for the first public gathering of Waves Church. And when the day arrived, this was the kind of weather that we got which looks quite a bit like the weather we've had even this morning here in the Metroplex. There was an unprecedented, once-in-a-generation tropical storm, and I thought, God, this is not funny. I don't appreciate this. <laughs> Despite that, there were still over 140 people that came to the first ever kind of public gathering of Waves Church. Yeah, we feel super grateful for that. Um, 
uh, Waves met the, the, uh, a week later for a second gathering and did a meal, and you can kind of see photos here. There were almost 200 people that came to the second gathering. Uh, we got to meet all kinds of students, and, and we're excited about what God is up to. So I would, I would ask for you continued prayers in the months and years ahead for Waves Church. And I want to preach today from the very same passage as my last sermon as teaching minister, from the very same passage I preached uh, for my first sermon at Waves Church, because the message is true for every church. And I would ask you right now, at all campuses, would you stand for the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. This is God's word. You can be seated. Two questions. Jesus asks two questions that at their essence sum up two things that all of us have to deal with throughout our entire life. And here's here's the shortened version of Jesus' questions. What do other people say? What do I say? In fact, live at our campuses, would you read those with me? What do other people say? What do I say? Now, this is true for every single one of us, wherever you are on the faith spectrum. And by the way, if you're, if you're new or maybe you're somebody who'd say, I don't know that I call myself a Christian, you know, I'm kind of checking this thing out or listening online, I'm so glad that you're with us because I think you can appreciate Wherever you are in terms of what you would say you believe about God or about Jesus or about the world, these are two questions that end up applying and having to be dealt with by all of us, including every generation, which, by the way, here on Family Worship Weekend, let me, let me put this in terms that I think our, our kids uh, and, and, and students would understand. So, so kids, you know that there's things that that you might say, like for instance, if you, if you go up to the counter to order, order something at, at, uh, at Chick-fil-A and, and they're, they're asking, do you want white milk or chocolate milk? Well, the questions become, what does my parent say and what, does, what do I say? Because the child might say, I want that chocolate milk. But if mom or dad say, no, you get that white milk, then that is what it is, right? But there's a certain point in all of our development and journey where all of a sudden what we say starts to go. Where, for instance, here we're we're part of this new church on a university campus and I'm watching these freshmen come in and for years it's been, what does mom or dad say? And now all of a sudden it's like, ooh, what do I say? Mom and dad said, be home by midnight. Guess what? I'm a freshman. I'm going to stay up all night. 
Mom, mom and dad said, you, you need to get your sleep. Well, guess what? I'm going to be a nocturnal human being now just because I can. Two questions. What do people say? What do I say? When Jesus asks these questions, I want you to notice that he does not ask it in the general way that I just did. Jesus asks a specific and personalized version of these questions. Listen again to the first one. Who do people say the Son of Man is? What Jesus is essentially asking is, who do people think I am? What is the crowd saying about me? In fact, in the other Gospels, this is recorded, you can see this in, in Mark, uh, where, where Jesus doesn't even use the title Son of Man. He just says, who do people say I am? And this is partly because Jesus is newer on the scene. I mean, he's this traveling rabbi who's going from town to town, region to region, and he's, he's preaching, he's performing miracles, he's getting a lot of attention from, from people who are maybe on the fringe of society, who are desperate for help, but he's also getting a lot of attention from people who are powerful because they're noticing he's able to kind of speak with this authority. And so rumors and comparisons start to come in. It's a little bit like, it's a little bit like when a new, a new talent, a songwriter emerges on the scene and she's so gifted and somebody will say something like, wow, I mean, she could be the next Taylor Swift. Or when an athlete shows up at the combine and, and they play amazingly and, and it's like, man, the way he throws, he could be the next Tom Brady. Well, take, take Taylor Swift and Tom Brady, combine their clout and multiply that several times over and that's about the Jewish equivalent of the disciples' answer. They bring up Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in all of the Old Testament. They talk about Jeremiah, the other prophets. They talk about a modern-day prophet, John the Baptist, who had been able to grab these crowds and speak in a powerful way. I think the disciples were very proud of their answers because overall, the crowds out there had a pretty high opinion of Jesus. Now, maybe you are in an environment where people around you have a high opinion of Jesus. Maybe even they would say, you know what, I wouldn't say necessarily that Jesus is God, but I think Jesus was a good teacher. I think, he, I think he, he's kind of one of the great kind of religious figures in history. I think, I think his teachings about how to treat other people, you know, I think those are really important. Maybe there's people around you who don't necessarily have a high opinion of Christianity, but have some level of respect for Christ. That's not uncommon. But I want you to note that in this passage, Jesus is not interested in dwelling on the good opinion others have of him. He's interested in personalizing that question. After asking, what do other people say? Jesus asks, what about you? Who do you say I am? Two questions. What do other people say about Jesus? What do I say about Jesus? The first question, what do others say, is a matter of information. But the second question, what do I say, is a matter of formation. The first question is educational. The second question is relational. To answer the first question, you got to learn some things about the world, but in order to answer the second question, you got to wrestle with some things about yourself. And can I just, can I just say, 
that Jesus, listen close, Jesus is not going to settle for you just knowing what other people think about him. Jesus is not going to settle for you being aware of other, people, other people's claims about him. That means that Jesus, at the end of the day, is not interested in what others have to say, but he's asking you and me today, what is our personal answer? Knowing what other people believe, knowing what your parents believe, knowing what your siblings believe, knowing what your friends believe, knowing what a pastor believes, those things might help you understand faith, but they cannot stand in the place of your faith. At the end of the day, Jesus wants to know, what do you believe about him? He's not asking for polling data from the masses. He wants your personal answer. Because how you answer that question, oh man, this is like the most important thing I could say. How you answer that question will impact every other part of your life. Now let me pause for just a moment and acknowledge it can be intimidating to be asked that question. What do I believe? It requires some vulnerability, some humility, and yet some courage to answer that question for ourselves. Man, for kids or students in the room who as you grow and develop, you're kind of working through, how do I answer that question about what I believe about Jesus? I can remember when, when, I was, when I was growing up and I was working on and trying to understand my specific answer about this, the day that I was baptized as a middle schooler, I mean, I had an answer. But I will tell you that in the years since, God has continued to help me grow into learning and understanding and appreciating more about what I said that day. And so the, the invitation to answer that question isn't to say that you have everything figured out about Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. You're never going to have everything figured out about him. Jesus is, is the one from whom all wisdom comes and derives. And so we're never going to understand everything about the mind of Christ. And so you can spend years following Jesus, and he will lead you into more and more of who he is and what is in his heart for the nations and generations. Anybody who's been following Jesus longer than a few years, you say amen. Amen. Yeah, the point of this answering this question isn't that we know everything, but it's that do we have a starting place that is solid ground? Because when Simon Peter answers, he says something that Jesus says is foundational. And here's Simon Peter's answer. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Do you know this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, that anybody has professed who Jesus is? It's the very first time that somebody has said who Jesus is, and when Jesus responds, he says, oh man, flesh and blood didn't tell that to you. That's not something that came from somebody else. That's not something that came from what other people say. That's something that my Father in heaven revealed to you. And he says, this is foundational. I love how one commentator put it. When, when Peter 
when Peter says, Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah. It's like you're God's anointed one. You're God's chosen one. You are the redeemer of the world. He tries to put it in, the commentator tried to put it in modern language. And it's as if Simon Peter said, Jesus, you're the point. You're the answer. You're the reason. You are it. And if you hear that confession, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, and you're, you're like, okay, well, I understand that's what Peter said, but I don't know what it means or why it matters. Here's the what and why. The what of this confession is that Christians believe and profess that there is a God, a God who is alive, a God who's not a figment of our imagination, a God who isn't some sort of religious wishful thinking, but a God who is all-powerful and still personal, a God who is beyond us but miraculously among us. And this God in this profession, we believe, came into creation through Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and brought with him an announcement about a kingdom that would rule and reign over all the world, God's kingdom. A kingdom that was part of a reclamation, a, a redemption project, a rebuilding project for all of creation and for all of humanity. That's the what. Why does that matter? Because making this confession will reorder everything in your life. This is not a confession you can make that will then sort of adapt easily into your life. This is a confession that if you make it, it will turn your world upside down. It will reorder your values and your principles and your understanding of the world. Which, by the way, for anybody who's newer to the Christian faith, I want to make sure you hear this. The Christian faith is not founded on principles and values. Oh, I mean, you can open God's word and God has lots to say. And God's people have lots to teach about principles and values. Lots to say about love and about justice, and about service. But listen close. Christianity isn't founded on those principles. Christianity is founded on a person. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And when you make that confession about who he is, Jesus will be the one to show you what love looks like. Jesus will be the one to show you what justice looks like. Jesus will be the one to model servant for you and to model service for you so that you understand what principles and values really look like lived out with Jesus because it's founded on him. And notice this. When Jesus answers Peter, don't miss this. He gives Peter a new name and calls him into a new group. He, he says, you're, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Listen close. When we encounter Jesus for who he is, he tells us who we are. And he tells us where we belong. When we encounter Jesus with all of his authority, then he gives us a new identity and a new community. He calls, he calls Simon Peter. Now, I'm, I'm a mid-30s dad. I love a good dad pun. And you need to know, uh, Jesus is playing with language here. Like in, in, uh, in, in the original language, he's saying, uh, you are Peter, which means rock. It's like, you're rocky, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. 
Your rock, that's, he's playing with this kind of idea. But after he says this, he then says, the gates of Hades will not overcome this church, this people. So I want to take you on a little trip to Caesarea Philippi. I got to travel there in 2015. It's in the northern part of Israel. And when you get to Caesarea Philippi, well, you can hear, in, even in that first name, Caesarea, like Caesar. This was a Romanized town, even in Israel. And there are, to this day, ruins and relics from pagan worship, from Roman worship. And near there is a big, rocky hill that's called Mount Hermon. And on Mount Hermon, our guide said, imagine Jesus at the top of this mount with his disciples. And he's looking down a sort of Romanized religious road with all kinds of idols and temples and pagan worship happening. And Jesus asks this question about who he is among the options of the world. But then our guide showed us that down at the bottom of this rocky hill, there's a cave-like opening that was known as the mouth of the gates of Hades. It was considered by the pagans this sort of gateway, this meeting point between the underworld and our world. And you can imagine with that kind of dark context, there was very dark pagan worship and sacrifices that happened in that very spot. And our guide said, imagine Jesus saying, as he's on top of this rock, he says that he's going to build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The darkness of the world, the spiritual forces at work against God in this world will not overcome what Jesus is going to do through this group he calls his church. And man, this, this gives me such hope. Even as I head out the door here at the hills, it gives me such great hope for the future of Waves Church. Because at the end of the day, Jesus has a promise he's making. He's saying that he is the one building his church. And as I have reflected Hills Church on this beautiful local community and all the ways God has blessed this particular group of people across multiple campuses, making an impact in DFW and all around the world, I need you to still hear something. At all of our campuses, we have amazing elders who serve this church well, but our elders are not building this church. There are great ministers who serve and work and amazing staff at this church, but staff and ministers are not building this church. We have an incredible senior teaching minister with an amazing gift in preaching, but Rick actually is not building this church. There's amazing volunteers with servant hearts who serve and make things happen all over this community, but volunteers are not building this church. And there's an amazing church community, members who love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's amazing, but our family community is not building this church. There's amazing resources and generosity that happens, uh, that, that's given all around the world, but our resources are not building this church. You need to hear, Hills Church family, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is building this church. Jesus Christ is building his church. 
Jesus Christ is working through his people to build his church. Jesus Christ is working through his spirit to build this church. And man, we need to remember that. For the days when ministry is thriving, lest we take credit ourselves. And for the days when there are struggles and hard times, lest we lose hope. Because at the end of the day, it's always been Jesus building his church. And I believe that not only for the future, I believe that because of what we've seen in the past. Oh man, trace church history and you will see over and over and over again that it was Jesus building his church. It's always been him. It's been Jesus, the cornerstone, the Christ, the one whose willing sacrifice paved a way for sinners like you and me. We broken vessels who've been redeemed. And sure, as a collective body, we are often bloodied and battered. Our attempts at unity are more scattered than gathered. Our wedding dress, a mess of tears and tatters. But Christ in us is the one who truly matters. For despite our many faults, despite our selfish default, despite the enemy's assaults, Christ has done a work through his church. You may have forgotten how the begotten's bride turned the tide time and again. You may have forgotten, but let me remind you when. Let me remind you when Roman parents saw no worth in warped figure or frame. They'd leave defective infants to die, but then the Christians came. These adopting Jesus lovers saw in every rescued child a value divine and inherent, so the name they claimed was Godparents. Let me remind you when illiteracy was part and parcel, when those who could read were a marvel. Who was it that started the first elementaries? Who was it that founded the first academies? It was not a monarch or politicians. It was the monks and priests and nuns who served in missions. And now the Christ-born revolution of public education is any parent's bottom-rung expectation. Let me remind you when the plague, the bubonic, careened over Europe unbridled and chronic. Who was it that opened the first hospital rooms? Who was it that served in that hell-raising doom? It was not a governing power responding in earnest. No, it was the people of Christ, the suffering servant. Let me remind you, let me remind you when slavery was rampant, when people were property for the privileged and ruthless, and those who fought against it, they weren't just moral. No, the truth is they were Christian brothers and sisters in arms who would no longer suffer the harm being done to generations untold. These Jesus lovers were bold as they stood for what's right, risking their lives to say bond or free, we are one in Christ. Let me remind you, let me remind you how freedom has meant something very different depending upon your race or pigment, how black and white have been segregated the tension like a knife serrated, cutting through communities and cities, tearing a nation apart and breaking God's heart. But when a massive march began and a speech rang out through the entire land, it was not a congressman whose voice boomed to the bleachers. It was a pastor, a preacher 
who dreamed of a day when this nation would make way for a kingdom-minded policy. And then that man was martyred for the sake of God implanted equality. Now, I'm not trying to say that the church is perfect, but I believe with all my heart that she is worth it. For it is in spite of us that Christ is a light in us. That's why we sing it in our songs. In our weakness, he is strong. In our frailty, he prevails over every wrong. In our adopted grace, he gives us a place to belong. So wherever the church has been, wherever the bride of Christ is coming from, if it is Jesus who leads us, though we stumble and fall, we humble our hearts and we follow the one and the only Lord of all. Amen, amen. Stand to your feet. Let's respond and worship together.